right. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I just really want to thank everybody. Uh, it is something to get up on a Sunday morning, especially when it's daylight savings time, yes. comb your hair, get your kids ready, and come to worship God. I really appreciate everybody who puts in effort just to put the service together uh, because of your love for God. Um, I'm really grateful that I have a relationship with Joe and Lynette Collins. And they're wonderful kids. Um, when I think about their faith, it gives me hope for the world. I see in them a deep love for God. And I've experienced it personally in the way that they've reached out to me to make me feel great. Um, I hope that you can hope for greater things. And there goes my phone. I hope that my phone continues to work. Um, I really do want you to hope for greater things, because the world doesn't seem all right. When you look at the Collins, you think everything's great, but when you take your eyes off of Christians or off of Christ, the world is upside down. Um, for instance, as of the latest count, the Syrian refugee crisis is concerning over 5 million people who have had to leave their nation of origin, fleeing destruction. And that's not even counting the over 6 million people within their own nation in Syria who have been displaced, half of which are children. It's a level of evil and violence that is hard to fathom. Sometimes you just want to turn off the news because it's hard to look at. Meanwhile, in our own nation, our leaders act dishonestly and downright despicably. And I know that here in Simi Valley, it's been uh, big news nationally, but here recently, Nancy Reagan was laid to rest right here in your own hometown. And it seems less that it's a passing of an individual and more of a passing of an era. All the pictures that we've seen over the last week of her and her husband, Ronald, and we remember a time when politics weren't quite so dirty. So it doesn't seem like the world's all right. I, uh, I don't know if you guys like watching The Walking Dead and post-apocalyptic uh, movies and film. There's something about it, though, that speaks to us because it feels like we're not that far away from it. And uh, personally, I, I really like reading uh, fiction. And a book I've read recently, it was a National Book Award finalist, was called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. And in this novel, 99% of the world's population has been completely annihilated by something called the Georgia flu. Uh, St. John Mandel writes that it exploded like a neutron bomb over the surface of the earth. And so you get the typical post-apocalyptic story, people struggling for survival, the few making it, the many passing. But what's interesting is it flashes forward 20 years after the crisis has kind of settled down and people are trying to rebuild. And the story follows a traveling group of artists and actors called the Traveling Symphony. And uh, what they have is a, a pickup truck that they've removed the engine from and they carry it with horses and they go from town to town doing Shakespearean plays and playing music. And what happens in every town that they go to, whether young or old, people hear the words of Shakespeare 
some of the greatest words written in the English language, and they just start weeping. They remember how great society had once been. And uh, painted on the, the caravan of the Traveling Symphony is this phrase, survival is insufficient. The reason why they do this is because survival is insufficient. Never mind that this quote is lifted from Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> Nobody in the story is alive to even remember that. But it sums up something really powerful, that we're meant for something more than just getting by. Now, in that story, they were getting by, survive, going beyond survival by doing art. And that has a, a, a quality to it that does give us a reason to live. But even that is insufficient. And we're made for something more than mere survival. We're made for more than just consuming the next piece of shiny plastic that Apple puts out. We're meant for something more than dressing up our food in different clothing so that we can take shots of it and post it. We're meant for something more in our spirituality than merely going through the checkout aisle in Walmart and saying, God bless you to the cashier. We're meant for something more than saying what we would say to somebody who sneezes. God bless you. And not that there's anything wrong with that, honestly. Saying God bless you is a great thing. All the niceties that we do in church, God bless you, I'm praying for you, and you know, all that is wonderful. But we're meant for more than just that. And it's not selfish. It's not sinful that you want more. You were meant for more. God designed you for more. God has purposed from the very beginning that he would draw together a diverse people for himself that might know him personally, walk with him, and make his praise known. You were designed to walk with the living God. A living God. Not a dead God. Not a merely religious God. The God that it says measured the seas in the palm of his hand. The God that it says rides atop the clouds. The God that it says commands all of the heavenly host who are equipped with fiery swords. This is the God we are called to know. And it's only when we walk with him and see clearly who he is that we see what we're really meant for. That we really do see survival is insufficient. Remember Job? Whatever you make of the story and some of the fantastical elements of it, it was a man who was suffering and who was wanting to know the answer. What, a, what is really going on? Nobody's ever felt more like the world was upside down than Job did. And he had many friends who tried to answer the question for him, who tried to tell him what God's will was and why things were upside down. And we talk about Job's friends, and we, we kind of mock them for not getting the answers right, but really, we're not any wiser than them. And Job himself didn't have the answer. It was only when Job saw God that it all made sense. He says in chapter 42, verse 5, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
It's when we come before God that everything makes sense. It's when we come before God that we can harmonize all the suffering in the world with the hope that stands before us in heaven. And that's my hope for you this morning, is that in reading the word together and spending just about 30 minutes together this morning, that we can really have hope, that we can remember God. Amen? So before we do that, let's, let's just pray together. Let's spend some time just praying for understanding. Father, we want to come before you like Job. Our suffering is not the same as his, but it's real. Each one of us has something that's making us struggle, causing us to really doubt. And we want to come before you right now this morning so that we can see you. Like Moses said, show me your glory. We want to see your glory, God. I pray that as we open up the scriptures, we would see clearly, not just with our eyes, but with our hearts, with our minds. Help us to to really understand and really gain conviction on how great you are so that we can be strengthened. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So let's start here in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture. I hope that's okay. We kind of get into this habit sometimes of just picking small scriptures and kind of digging into those. And that's really good. You you can get a lot out of a few words in, in the Bible. But sometimes to get scope and to get the big picture, you have to read a lot. Right? So we're going to do that this morning. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 14, says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Without holiness, it says, no one can see God. So if we're going to see God, we've got to be holy. Christians need to be different. A people that are not like the world, which is so chaotic, but a people who are harmonious and at peace with one another. This happens, I believe, and I believe the scripture says, when we revere God. That's kind of an old word. Let's just say when we respect God. When we really respect Him, we really respect each other. And so my first point is that harmony grows where respect is sown. When we plant those seeds of respect for God and for one another, we grow a crop or a harvest of harmony in our church. Think about singers. Singers harmonize when they respect each other. Soloists can get away with not listening to anybody but themselves. And sometimes that's nice to not have to worry about harmonizing. But if you want to work with other musicians, you have to listen. It's necessary. It's not about uniformity. It's about harmony. Each part is doing their own thing, but they're doing it together. And that only works when people listen. 
people live in harmony when they respect each other, when they respect boundaries. You've heard the saying that fences make good neighbors. When there's a clear boundary line between what is mine and what is yours, we can live together in harmony. It doesn't mean that we don't help each other. It just means that we respect each other. And wherever respect is lost, there can be no harmony. In post-1917 Russia, for instance, after the revolution, when they became firmly communist, a shift happened in the country's respect towards its weakest members. In fact, they changed the definition of people. They had a new definition for people. There were people, and then there were former people. Former persons. And what made you a former person? was if you ceased to have value to the state. If you were old or infirm, you had no more value to the state. You were a former person. If you were young and you couldn't work after a certain age, when you should be at working age, you're a former person. You're you're not valuable. If you have mental deficiencies or physical disabilities, you're a former person. We don't need you anymore. And what happened to that society? Was it harmonious? Was it chugging along and working together? Or did it crumble and fall? We need harmony. And we're only going to have harmony when we respect one another. Christians, I believe, have the best growth potential for harmony because we respect one another. And the reason why is not because we see that each person has value, although that's true. But we respect one another because we know where each individual comes from. We respect each other because each person was made in the image of a living God. We respect people because we know that this living God was willing to send his own son to die for each one of us. For that reason, we have the best growth potential for harmony because we respect our creator. This is why the passage says to make every effort to live in peace with everyone. This is why it says, let no bitter root grow up and defile the many. Because this is the people of God. This is the bride of Christ. And I want you to think about that for a minute. How much God values this church that he would call it the bride of his son, Jesus Christ. I don't know if the men want to be known as the bride of Christ, but men, you who have daughters especially, or or sons who are going to marry someday a woman, you love not only your son, but his wife. His his bride, your daughter-in-law, is every much a part of your family as your own son. That's how God feels about us, that we are his daughter-in-law. This is why we should remember Esau. Esau, it says, had no respect for the birthright of his father. If you don't know the story, Esau was a big fan of stew. He loved lentil stew. One day, he was off hunting, and his stomach started to grumble, And he got this smell in his nose of this wonderful lentil stew. Sure enough, his younger son, Jacob, who's the heel grabber, the one who's constantly trying to usurp him, is making this lentil stew to entice 
his brother Esau. And so Esau is so hungry, he says, give me some of that lentil stew. And Jacob says, you've got to pay for it. Nothing's free. And Esau says, well, what, what's the price? And he says, well, that's your birthright. You're not using it. Right? Maybe someday you're going to use it, but right now you're hungry. Why don't you eat? So Esau, who was godless and didn't respect what he had, gave it up for a pot of lentil stew. This is more than just overpaying for a meal. We've all done that. When you understand what a birthright is, it's insane that he gave it up. You see, there's inheritance rights, but then there's birthright. Birthright goes beyond possessions, although that could be included in a birthright. A birthright means that you are now the family head. When dad passes on, the one with the birthright becomes the new patriarch. He's the one who's listed in the genealogy. He's the one who has a special relationship with the God of his fathers, who is now the spokesperson for that living God. Remember, we talk about the God of Abraham, of Isaac. It could have been Esau. But he gave it up. He didn't respect what he had. The point that the author's making is, Don't you go and lose respect for the birthright of God. And what he says the birthright is, what he's saying is, the church is the birthright. The church is what's special to God. That's why it says, don't let a bitter root grow up. Do you realize that this family that you have here is prized in God's eyes? Don't give it up for some grudge. Just because you're angry at somebody, don't give it up. It's not worth it. He says, don't let sexual immorality defile anybody. Like a pot of lentil stew, it's got its momentary pleasure. The author says, don't give it up. You have something infinitely greater. But how are we going to harmonize with the body of Christ? unless we respect God first, unless we first respect how great a prize this church is. Remember, I'm trying to help us see God. And one of the ways that we do that is in seeing his people. And it's hard. I think sometimes we see each other and it's like, "Ah, I know you, I know your faults, you've let me down. And we start looking at that stuff and the church starts to look as upside down as the world. We start losing sight of God. We need to see that this church is amazing and it's worth holding on to. I want to go a little bit deeper here in the passage, though, because it's beyond just respecting the church and and seeing the kind of God that we really have. And so the next point I have is that faith is like miracle grow for respect. We're going to read this here, and then I'll put that statement up there, and you can write it in your notes if you want. Hebrews 12, it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, 
Or does such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them? Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Summed up, faith is miracle growth for respect. When you see what you've come to, you can't help but respect God. What he's saying is that the heavenly Jerusalem is far superior to the earthly Mount Sinai. The church, even meeting in a hotel room, is superior to the nation of Israel. I've heard some people say that they wish that they could go back to the way things used to be. That they long for the days of rebuke and correcting. and They want a spiritual whip at their backs to help them stay faithful. They feel like if I had somebody whipping me into shape, I'd be a better spouse. I'd be a better parent. I'd be a better Christian. I'd show up on time. I'd share my faith more. What I need is a whip. And honestly, I understand this. I've, I've worked out before. It doesn't look like I have. But when I was in high school, I weighed 130 pounds when I was a senior. I had to drink protein shakes, and I was a vegetarian too, so they had to be like vegetarian protein shakes. I was drinking them all the time and working out, and with the help of a trainer, I bulked up to 150 pounds. Yeah, right. I'm still at about that weight now <laughs> at 34 years of age. Um, and I've worked out without a trainer and did not get the same results. So I get it. There's benefit to having a trainer. But the whip cuts flesh. A trainer can train my body. But it never really gets down to the heart. Once the trainer is gone, I stop working out. What we need to change our hearts is more than the whip. We need faith. What actually moves our hearts is faith. We need faith. The law was a whip. That's what this passage is saying. It was given in darkness and gloom. It scared people so much that even Moses, the most righteous among them, the one it was said of whom was the most humble man who ever lived, trembled in fear. 
before God's presence. And yet, what happened? Did that lead to holiness so that the people could see God? Did it lead to righteousness? No, at that very same time, even with the cloud upon Mount Sinai, the people together made a golden calf to be their God, and they worshipped it. The whip cuts flesh and scares us, but it doesn't cut the heart to repair us. The law wasn't bad. What it did was it revealed their need for God's grace. Galatians 3.24 says that the law was like a prison guard, holding us in captivity and goading us on until we could see the fulfillment in Christ, until Jesus would set us free. Romans 7, 7 says that the law never took away sin, it just made us aware of it. What actually moves our heart is faith. And what actually leads to respect for God is faith. And church, you know this. Like, I get really fired up about these things because I, I, I'm a minister. I have relationships, and I see people who struggle, and it breaks my heart. But you know this. I'm not teaching you anything new. You know that faith is superior to law. You know this. You know that the heavenly Jerusalem is superior to Mount Sinai. You know that tablets written on stone are inferior to the covenant written in the blood of Jesus Christ. But do you know what you've come to? Do you see where you've arrived? Did you just think you're in a hotel room this morning? You're not. It is, but it's infinitely more than that. You have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, to the spirits of men and women made righteous. We need to understand what we have here. Do you know what it means when it says the church of the firstborn? Let's just talk about that for a minute. There's two ways that you could read this, and both are awesome. The first one is that the church of the firstborn is the church of Jesus Christ. He's often called the, the, the firstborn. Right? When we read in Matthew chapter 16 that he tells Peter, that on this rock he will build his church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What he's saying is that his church, the church of the firstborn, cannot be overcome. It cannot be shaken. Even the gates of hell will fall down before it. That's what you've come to, the church of Jesus Christ that the gates of Hades won't overcome. But then the second part of it, is equally awesome, because the firstborn isn't just Jesus, it's you. Firstborn means those that are chosen, those that are selected and elected to be God's people. Take a look at Numbers 3, verse 13. God is saying here, when I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether human or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. Who are the firstborn here? He's saying those that he set apart 
for himself. The church of the firstborn means that we are a church of people God set apart for himself to be his sons and daughters. Christians, do you know that you are the people God chooses? You are the people he desires. You know that he loves you, but did you know that he likes you? Did you know that he is proud of you? You may think you're just suiting up to go to a hotel room and sing some songs and listen to some sermons. You know God loves that about you? He looks at you, he says, that's awesome. I'm so grateful you make that sacrifice to come out and hear my word. Did you know that your name is already written in heaven? Did you know that Jesus is already preparing a place just for you? So that you can be at home someday. Did you know that someday you're going to meet with God in heaven? And he's going to look at you and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you're probably going to say, who are you talking to? Does God really know? Has God really seen what went on down there? And God's going to say, yes, I know you. Sure, everybody could have done better. Nobody really gave their best. But you did good. You did good. He's going to say, I never made you to be me. I made you human. I didn't make you to be Jesus. I made you to be his follower. God esteems those that are broken and contrite. He says, I designed you to be weak and frail. That's what I love about you. Do you know this? That's how much God loves you, that he doesn't just love you, he likes you. And can we respect a God like that? You see, when we see that, when, when we see beyond just the flame and the, the earthquake and the, all that, the scary stuff about God, and we see his heart for us, doesn't that inspire you so much more to respect him? Absolutely. So those of us who are not Christians, did you know that God made you too? I don't want to be preaching a lesson that's just, Christians are awesome, and if you're not a Christian, you're going to hell. Did you know God likes you too? God loves you too? The difference isn't that God likes the one and hates the other. It's that one is going to be saved and one is going to be lost. If you are not a Christian, what that means is that you are not in his elect. You're not in his prized, you know, church. You're in a kingdom of flesh and blood. And your heart yearns, Jason, your heart yearns for something greater. And you can look to it in art, and you can look to it in family, and you can find some sense of happiness in life. But your heart is always reaching out for more. And God is calling you and saying, come into my kingdom. That's where you belong. And I want you to listen to these words, and they're not just for the non-Christian, but the Christian as well. We're going to read on in Hebrews. 
after all that's been said about the, the heavenly Jerusalem, what we've come to, the author says this, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The word, once more, indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. God is warning us in love, Christians and non-Christians alike. He's saying there will come a time when everything is shaken, like a dirty rug that needs to be taken outside and beaten. God is going to take this messed up world and he is going to shake it. And everything that is not of him is going to fly off. So what God is saying is hold on to the heavenly Jerusalem. Come into the spiritual kingdom which cannot be shaken. And he says it because he loves us. There's a few more words in this passage that serve as a really good conclusion. Let's, let's read on a little bit. Hebrews 12. It says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with, I'd love to hear you guys say it, with what? Reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The whole purpose of this passage was just to remind people, God is awesome. He is awesome in his power, which is terrifying, but even more so in his love. When we see who God is, we should be thankful, but we should also have reverence, respect. When we do that, we're going to respect each other better. Our church is going to be more harmonious. We're going to try as best we can to live at peace with everyone, forgiving grudges, and being a pure people. And we're going to be faithful as we look to God and grow and grow greater and greater. If you're not a Christian and you want to get into the kingdom that can't be shaken, I want to encourage you to study the Bible with somebody. Get involved in some Bible studies. Learn more about God. Faith comes from hearing. The Word of God. But for everybody now, we're going to take communion. And just like the church is something greater than we just see with our eyes, communion is something greater than just bread and juice. Right? Communion is a symbol of something much greater. It's a symbol of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we take it, we're not just ingesting it into our stomach, but when we take it with faith, we're, we're remembering that Jesus died for us, that his blood cleanses us, and now our names are written in heaven, and we're part of that birthright. Let's go to God in prayer, and uh, we'll take some communion. Father, thank you so much for being our living God.